Welcome to episode 95 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Carla Ewart and Ilea Danner-Grubbs. Hello, Carla and Ilea. Hey. Hi. Uh, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Um, Ilea, why don't you go ahead and go first? Hi, my name is Ilea Danner-Grubbs. I live in Trussville, Alabama with my husband, Brian, and our two young children. I got my degree from Wheaton College in elementary education uh, with a minor in Bible and a minor in French. And I taught in a classroom for six years, but now I homeschool my children. And uh, I work in several ministries in our church, uh, including co-leading our church's young adult group with my husband. All right, great. Thank you, Ilea. Uh, Carla, what about you? Yeah, so I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it's currently snowing to beat the band outside. it just all of a sudden started, so it's gorgeous. I live here with my two daughters. Um, I'm the founder and director of an organization called She Is Called, and we open conversations for women about calling, ambition, and leadership. Um, so that's what I do with my work time. Um, yeah, my degree, my undergrad degree is in Bible and sociology. I have a master's degree in English uh, from the University of Nebraska. So yeah, that's me. Thank you, Carla. Um, And my name is Alexis Neal. Uh, I live in Southern Missouri, so it is not snowing here um, with my husband, uh, Coyle Neal of the City of Man podcast, which is the political podcast part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Um, I spend most of my time with our two little boys, a preschooler and a toddler, um, but I do sometimes get to stretch my grown-up brain muscles. not only by participating in this podcast, uh, for which opportunity I'm quite grateful, but also by teaching as an adjunct uh, at Southwest Baptist University, where my husband is on the political science faculty. Um, I am a lawyer by training and was in practice for several years, um, but now I teach a smattering of law-related classes in a number of different departments um, and can thereby justify all those loans I took out back in the day. Um, And then as an added bonus, uh, I'm currently involved with our local government. So it it, it, I don't know that it's a lot, but it feels like a lot. So uh, anyway, that's what we've got going on. Um, so today we're here to talk about uh, the seasonally appropriate topic and, uh, and certainly relevant to our podcast interests, um, the Christmas song, Baby It's Cold Outside. Uh, there are a variety of opinions about this. Um, many of them are very strong uh, and there are feminists on both sides of the aisle uh, with regards to this particular musical number. So uh, we're gonna talk today about Baby It's Cold Outside Um, whether it's something that uh, we can continue to enjoy as feminists, whether we should be incensed by it, whether, yeah, what are the different uh, options that we have and how can we think about it well. Um, So to start us off for our first segment on knowing, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the history and the background of the song. Uh, Ileo, you want to talk us through that? Yeah, I had fun learning about this history. I did not know all of this. It was written originally in 1944 by Frank, I hope I'm saying it right, Losser. Is that what we're going with? Um, 
Sure. Uh, by Frank Lawson, um, for he and his wife to sing at parties. Um, back in the day, if you were a performing artist, it was assumed that when you went to cocktail parties, you would be part of the entertainment and, and share your talents with them. And so he wrote this song for them to sing and it was an instant hit with all of their friends and they had entire parties that people would put together built around them singing this as the final number it was the the closeout number and and they became kind of famous for it and uh he often joked that it kept them in truffles and caviar for years um so they um he his wife loved it they they sang it a lot um in 1948 so four years after he wrote it he sold it to mgm and um, they used it the next year in the movie Neptune's Daughter, um, where it won the film's only Academy Award, actually. The interesting thing that I found was that his wife was so angry that he sold it. She said she would have been less upset if she had caught him in bed with another woman. Um, she felt like he had betrayed her. It was their song. Um, and uh, the biography, one of the biographies on him uh, that I read said that whenever... Um, she would hear somebody talking about it. She would just mumble Esther Williams and Ricardo Montalban, the people who sang it in the movie, because she was just <laughs> so infuriated that he, he um, sold the song. But then when it won the Academy Award and he was famous and then he went on to write Guys and Dolls and um, became famous, she didn't mind quite so much after that. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but it is written as what is musically known as a call and response um, uh, where the response is almost always the same line, baby, it's cold outside over and over again. Um, there have actually been uh, entire essays written about um, how well it works even with such a limited scope of response, um, which is part of the, the kind of charm of the, the song. Um, an interesting note for our discussion coming up, um, the original parts that he wrote, he did not label them uh, male and female or man and woman, he labeled them wolf and mouse. Um, with the wolf obviously being the one who is uh, repeating baby it's cold outside. Um, it has been covered over 50 times. I, I stopped counting at 50, honestly. Um, <laughs> but um, it's been covered by everyone from Louis Armstrong, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, all the way to Idina Menzel and, um, and uh, who did she sing with? There's so many, Michael oh, Michael Buble. Yeah, Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood. I mean, every genre of music you can imagine. Um, it was covered on Glee. It's been, it was in uh, Pitch Perfect 3. So it, it has definitely been all around pop culture from the 1940s to literally this year. Um, and uh, so it is, it's very popular even instead of, and maybe even because of some of the controversy that's come out um, recently that has definitely not slowed down its, uh, its recording power. All right. Well, thank you, um, Ilea. I'm curious, have either of you seen Neptune's Daughter? I have never seen the whole thing. I watched the, the clip where it's um, played, and actually it's played twice. It's sung twice in the movie um, by two different couples, um, which I guess we'll talk about in a little bit. But, um, but no, I've not seen the rest of the movie. It's, it's new to me. Yeah, I watched the, the two clips because, yeah, as you said, it pops up twice in the film. Um, but I had never, I don't think I'd ever heard of it outside this context. And, and I watch a not insignificant number of old movies. So, um, but I had never come across that one and I hadn't seen it. And I just wasn't, wasn't sure if anyone else was in, in a different situation and could speak more to whether the movie was 
was noteworthy. Um, anyway, yeah, so I, thank you. I oh, sorry. No, that's okay too. I watch a fair amount of old movies, but I hadn't either. Like I watched the clips and was kind of excited about the clips and even what you just said about the way that he titled um, each part. When you watch the movie, that actually is really interesting. So we can talk about that in a minute, but um, yeah, I thought it was interesting. All right, so for, I don't want to sort of give away the ending of maybe what our views are uh, of the song, but uh, I'm curious, do you guys have, we talked about, um, Ilea, you mentioned how many times this has been covered, and it's a lot, and it's across a lot of different genres, and with a lot of different twists and, and, and spins on it. Um, do you have, uh, either of you have particular versions that you really like or really loathe, um, and anything you care to com comment on that? How about you, Carla? Um, I actually really like the Udina Menzel and uh, Michael Bublé version. It's just lovely. It's just super playful. Um, I don't know. I have all kinds of opinions about this song, and we'll get to those. But I think as a song, whatever its rhythm, its hook is, it's just adorable. So when they do it, um, I, their voices are fantastic together. So it feels old school again. It feels like the 1940s, and that's the version of things that I think I really like that feeling of sort of swing and um, whatever that is, it just, it feels really good. Well, certainly they, they're, um, I mean, Michael Bublé's kind of whole shtick is, hey, you don't get to listen to new Frank Sinatra records anymore. You don't get to listen to new Dean Martin records. You don't get to listen to new Bing Crosby records, but you know, how about right. you try some Michael Bublé? So, I mean, it makes so sense true. that his voice, um, would lend itself to to that more uh, the stylistic interpretation that was more like the original. Um, I have to say, I like the music, the the musicality, the, the the audio version of that. But I watched the video, and I just I absolutely hate yeah. the sexualizing of children and yes. like having kids play act at sexual politics for of adults. Yes. Um. And and that's what the, the music video is. They have like a little boy and girl acting through this, and they change the words to make it less overtly sexual. And they share a soda pop, and they don't talk about cigarettes and and things like that. But I just even if it's innocent, like I don't need a nine year old to have a boyfriend. And I just I. I don't like any of that. Um, I think that we don't let people be people and children be children long enough already. And we force that on them so young that that just pushes a button for me, even though I know they were just trying to be cute and probably trying to backpedal some of the sexual Absolutely. issues about this by saying, well, what if we just make it kids? Yes. But for me, it just it backfired. So yeah, uh, I'm curious about that. If their goal was to kind of say this has been hyper-sexualized, but it's a, it's a, a song about gameplay. A little bit um and just to kind of throw it back to a playful version with the children but i felt the same way in watching the video i was like "Ooh, that, that's super creepy i don't know what to do with that so yeah well and it, it i mean it is a song about sex like that that is what's going on um i think and, and we can talk more about that later but like you know whether or not whatever side you take on the um whether it's problematic or not like i i don't think that it's devoid of, of a sexual sexual undertones by any means. Um, I actually really like uh, the version that's in the, the Elf soundtrack um, that uh, Zoe Deschanel and Leon Redbone sing, but part of that's just because I love Leon Redbone and I love a bass and it's just so wonderful to hear him growling it along, even if it's a little bit out of place. Um, it doesn't have that same match to the, the 40s style um, and he doesn't necessarily sound like a counterpart for Zoe Deschanel, so maybe that also makes it seem less... Um, less sexual because it doesn't really sound like they're having a conversation, but I do love his voice. So, um, 
I did really enjoy that one. And then another one I think that's that's noteworthy um, and uh, enjoyable is uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and uh, Lady Gaga did um, a version of it for a Muppet Christmas something, and we, we'll put it in the show notes. But uh, and that's another one that's going to have the 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 mouse and wolf roles kind of flipped over what we would expect. Um, uh, and we can talk more about whether whether that affects our, our calculus and how, but it's it's really delightful and not just because Joseph Gordon-Levitt is kind of always delightful. Um, so those are some of the ones that I've enjoyed. So I, do you have some that you like? Um, yeah, it's you're gonna hate me. Um, actually, I don't really have some that I specifically like, although the Michael Bublé one, I like him in general and I like Adina Menzel. So that one is fine. When they come on the radio, like, yeah, that I like that one. Um, the only one I passionately dislike is the Zoe Deschanel and Leon Redmond one. I, it drives me crazy because she sounds like a like 15 year old girl because she has this, you know, kind of, naive high kind of voice and she that's kind of her persona anyway is this kind of um you know the the pixie spirit but and he sounds like the 65 year old man that he is he and so it it sounds really weird like it sounds creepy to me the same way that that video of the the children singing the song is creepy to me like what what is happening here i don't i like it in elf when she sings it with will ferrell like, I okay. wish they had recorded it for the end. Right. Because they have, you know, matching kind of sounding voices and, you know, whatever. Um, and I love both Leon Redbone and Zoe Deschanel. I love them, their voices. And um, they're both very talented singers. But it's just an odd pairing for me. Like, I don't know. That's fair. Um, yeah, that's fair. I can understand that. And I... I yeah, I, I don't really have a response to that. I think you're probably, <laughs> you're probably right about that. They're not, they don't sound well paired. Like the two voices yeah, don't pair yeah, well. Yeah, and a lot like, of the duets I was listening to, there would be that disconnect where I would be like, look, I like you, Nora Jones. You don't sound like you should be singing with Willie Nelson. Like yes, it, doesn't, yes. it doesn't work. Um, and some of those big name pairings just didn't work. And, and in that sense, certainly like Michael Bublé fits much better with the Broadway mm -hmm. sound of Adina Menzel. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of it is there aren't that many Christmas duets so it's it's sometimes just a hey we need these two guys to get on an album together let's have them do this duet you know like there's there's not if you want them in a Christmas duet this is pretty much the go-to so I think sometimes people get thrown together for duets that maybe wouldn't otherwise because it's kind of the only option on that sure. though this is a bit of a divergence but have you all seen or heard the um Lady is a Tramp duet between uh uh Lady Gaga and Bennett what's his name Bennett Oh, Tony Bennett? Tony Bennett. Oh my word. It's so wonderful. I mean, it's, it's um, the same thing where you've got a, kind of disparate voices, not doing the, like they're, they're very different and you, you're kind of like, how, how is that going to blend together? But that woman can sing in such a way that she just pulls that together and makes it come alive so gorgeously. Anyway, in terms of weird duets, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. I'll have to check that out. Um, yeah. I do think sort of fits into this conversation and it's not something that I put on our, our outline so I don't want to spend a ton of time on it but the musicality of this song it's I think it's just a great song there's a reason I think it gets in your ears it's satisfying to sing like there are a yeah. lot of Christmas songs that are not easy to sing like if you're at a party or if you're doing karaoke or there's just too many words or the rhythms are complicated this one is just fun and catchy and it's actually I think very pleasing to the ear. So I think a lot of its popularity is due to the the music, the the song itself. Um, and I think that, that some people maybe like it and sort of look for reasons to overlook any objections they might have just because they love the song of it. Um, I agree with that totally. It is a well-written song. Like whatever yeah. else you want to say about it, like yeah. 
Frank Glosser was a, a great writer and that's why he's famous. Yeah, as Guys and Dolls is a great, great show. Like the, he, he did a good job with the, the word interplay, the musical interplay, the, the, the timing, the, it, it works. It, it works as a, as a song for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, with that, um, let's go ahead and move into our second section uh, on reading. Um, and so we're, we're gonna break this up a little differently than we sometimes do on this podcast. Rather than walking uh, through individual pieces sort of one at a time, we're going to, to break up this topic into uh, sort of criticisms of the song and then uh, the potential for a, a defense from a feminist perspective. So uh, Carla, do you wanna talk to us about some of the controversy and criticisms connected to Baby It's Cold Outside? Sure, absolutely. We read a couple of pieces on this, one in Vanity Fair and one in the Washington Post, and we can post links to those in the show notes. But basically, the controversy around it is that it's a demonstration of rape culture. It's, it's a demonstration of a woman saying, hey, I think I should go. I probably shouldn't stay here. And saying no, the answer is no. And the other person, the male in the, in the original, or in the Neptune's Daughter, the first singing, um, says, oh no, but it's cold outside, you just can't go. And he keeps um, diverting her attention really from her intent to go by trying to compliment her and taking her coat and, and just not allowing her to exercise her no. Um, so there's, there's controversy around the way that that demonstrates um, rape culture as we understand it today. Um, and a con conversation around whether or not the song has just become something that we can no longer appreciate, basically, um, based on the way that we understand it at this point in history. Um, so that's that's the core of the controversy around it. There have been a couple of spoofs done on it that are oh just so painful. <laughs> There's one um, on Funny or Die where they use the words, they use the music just as they are, and um, basically demonstrate what would happen if the, this was sort of a, a an aggressively. Um, actually rape culture the way we understand it now. Like there's actually something put in the woman's drink. It actually sort of plays out. If you were doing this song the way that we understand someone um, avoiding and pushing against someone's no at this point in history, how that would look. And I honestly couldn't finish the video. It was just disturbing. It's, it's not, not fun to watch. But I think what we've talked about a little bit already um, with the way that Lauser, is that how we're saying it? Lauser wrote the song with wolf and mouse and those two not necessarily being gendered, but at the same time having wolf sound somewhat predatory, right? Um, that does really set the scene for the way this song has been used and viewed even currently. But in the original movie, in Neptune's Daughter, um, when it was performed, the first time it was performed, it was performed with the wolf being the role of the man and the mouse being the role of the woman. And then later in the movie, there's just another couple who sing it and the wolf is the woman and the mouse is the man. And so that gender play with those roles, I think is really, really interesting um, and starts to trouble a little bit some of what we're talking about. Um, yeah, so I think, I think there are a lot of ways to try to understand this controversy. I think, um, and we'll get, we'll get a little bit further into different ways to talk about it. But I think one thing to be really clear on is we are sort of anachronistically saying, here's what we know about rape culture and the power of no and what that means now and applying it back to a song that was written in 1940. Um, and the question becomes a little bit, not necessarily what was the song originally intended to do, but how can we appreciate it or not now with our current knowledge? Thanks, Carla, that's, uh, that's great. Thank you for, for giving us that background on the controversy. Um, 
Ilea, did you have uh, comments you wanted to make on this, these criticisms or sort of further thoughts on, on the controversy surrounding this song? Yeah, I, uh, one thing that I noticed in the biographies, um, there's, there's two main biographies um, about him. One of them is written by his daughter. Um, and um, she talks about that uh, he often introduced himself as the evil of the two losers um, because of his role in the song. That, that he, he always knew that this character was kind of a creep and he played on that like he thought it was funny and um, he joked about it often. And, um, so I thought that was interesting that, you know, even in 1940s, um, he, you know, he kind of saw that it was, he just thought it was funny, you know. Um, I did think, oh, I did want to um, also bring up, I don't know if you guys saw, but actually just today, CNN um, reported that there is a uh, radio station in Cleveland that has banned the song. Um, oh, wow. They're they're not playing it for the Christmas season. Um, and that literally like two hours ago, they just released that that news clip um, because of listeners' concerns. Because listeners were saying that um, they found it it triggering if they were a victim, or they found it um, un uncomfortable at best, and and they were asking, and the radio station said, yeah, okay, and um, so. You know, I'm sure that that will be uh, discussed in the news for a, a little while, but I thought that was just interesting that that came out today as we're recording. Them. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, it's fascinating. One of the things that um, I was going to bring up is that some of the, like, we've sort of pulled out or highlighted the controversy a little bit through some of the spoofs and the re- like the rewritings of this song. There's a, a couple of songwriters here from Minnesota, Lydia Liza and Josiah Lemansky, who did a, a rewrite of it with consent culture as the response. So like, instead of the responses being um, like opposed to her, they were affirming her no. So things like, um, I really must go. He came back with baby, I'm cool with that. Or um, the answer is no. He said something, his, his response line was, you deserve the right to say no. <laughs> so like that, when you start to highlight the way we've learned about no and consent um, and actually put new lyrics to this, you start to feel that juxtaposition in a way that, and that you know, just hasn't been available. And so I think that's really interesting and is both highlighting really good things and also um, creating something out of that song that I'm not sure it intended. So. Those are all excellent points. Thank you. Um, yeah. So I think a couple of the specific lines that are, that are often pointed to, like there's the sort of whole arc of the song um, and the repeated refrain of sort of arguing with or resisting or, or trying to negate the, the mouse's resistance. Um, but a couple of the lines I, I usually see that are that are complained of the most um, is uh, the big one, of course, is the what's what's in the drink line, mm -hmm. um, because we do know that that is a thing that happens, right? People people have uh, had their had their consent overridden, their right to consent overridden by substances they've ingested in their drinks, right? So that's that's that is an actual thing that we have seen happen, um, and so people look in the song and they they see that reflected there, um, and that's that's I think one of the big the biggest ones that I've seen uh, that people object to. Um, but there's other stuff too that, like you said, um, uh, Carla, that, that there's this repeated refrain of, I need to go, I want to go, I want to leave. Um, and then the answer is no, that's the other big one. Yeah, yeah which is interesting because I actually feel like I don't hear people use that one as much. And I do think that's the more troubling one. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll get to some of that in a minute. But, um, but you know, uh, 
that they see the woman is trying to maybe invoke other people as as just to sort of you know take her side like i'm trying to say no and you won't listen so i will invoke my family and other people who maybe um have more power than i do in your eyes um you know be concerned about my brother be concerned about whatever um so there, there are references there. And then, yeah, the, the constant attempt to distract or just to undermine um, what she's saying. And some people, I think, even said that uh, the, the one of the later lines where he says, um, you know, I would feel terrible if you died, uh, basically, because of how cold it is. Um, and that that was, that was uh, threatening, right? You're actually, like, you should stay because it will be hazardous, hazardous to your health if you go um, and, and reading a... Um, well, and also that like one point there to me, the, my actually my biggest frustration with the song is is that it um, actually is a demonstration of the way that we have removed female agency. Like not not even I mean I think the rape culture critique is really real, but the fact that for her to say no, all she can do is rely on calling up other people's criticism, and then even when he's talking about think about how sad I would be if you died, <laughs> like he's not asking her to care for herself he's asking her to care for him so it's again like everyone else is central and should be her concern she should not be her concern do you know what i'm saying so like that to me is a thing that most frustrates me about it that it's a demonstration of the patriarchal demand that women be separate from their own voice and their own agency and their own self-understanding they're just supposed to be thinking about what my aunt would think and what my you know brother's gonna say and and then oh yeah you're right i can't die because then you'd be sad you know um <laughs> that kind of thing centering everyone else's experience rather than their own that's the thing about it that like is fingernails on the chalkboard to me well, right. And he even says, right, when he's giving her reasons, like there's the, it's cold outside, but there's also, how can you do this to me? And what's the sense in hurting my pride? Right. It, it is, um, he gives her a lot of reasons that are very self-oriented. Um, but, and we'll talk about, I think why that's, there's two ways to look at that. Um, right. um, I think, but, but yeah, so certainly I understand that like that for, for people who are looking at this and they can see all of these evidences um, from their perspective that, that this is perpetuating and, and celebrating even um, uh, the rape culture. So those are some of the, um, the specifics um, that I think people have mentioned, like specific por portions of the song. Are there other ones that you guys can think of that are, that are specific lines that you've seen people call out and say, this is a problem? Some people critique like the way that he tries to compliment her to get her to stay, um, like that your lips look delicious, that kind of thing, like um, sort of using flattery as manipulation a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, so there's that critique that's been leveled against it. Um, those are the main things I've heard though, uh, overall, is that her no is not, is always just swept by, that she, um, the, the what's in this drink is a, is a big deal. Um, and I think we can talk a little bit more about that historically speaking in the context of the song. And then um, the idea that he seems to be trying to manipulate her um, through flattery and, and uh, like talking about her appearance rather than her experience, you know, like highlighting what, what he seems to see in her in terms of appearance and trying to get her to move toward him or stay as, a, as a, an act of being pleasing to his desire, so. Right. Um, so yeah, so then shifting gears a little bit, um, there has been, so I, I think, um, 
historically speaking, as I understand it, this was viewed as a progressive and more liberating type of song. Um, and then, of course, we, we've, we've had a swing away from that and a lot of criticisms of it. But there have been those who come back and say, um, actually, no, this, this is, in fact, um, not, um, not, a, not necessarily a celebration of rape culture. It is, in fact, uh, something that, that we can find feminist truths in. Um, and there, there are a couple pieces we read um, for this as well. Um, so there is uh, a piece in Persephone, Listening While Feminist, in defense of Baby It's Cold Outside. And then there's, it was a BuzzFeed article, but really it was just calling up a Tumblr post um, that was specifically trying to, to formulate a feminist defense as well. And honestly, I thought that one was, was the one that I found um, uh, really helpful in thinking through some of this stuff. And it basically goes through some of these these particular lyrics that people criticize and tries to put them in context for the culture at the time. Um, and so um, basically the, the overarching interpretation lens for this is women were not socially free to say yes at this time. Um, and so if your answer was yes, you were going to have to get there another way. Um, and so in fact, from that perspective, this whole song is um, basically the woman asking the man to help her justify a behavior she is not free to choose on her own uh, in the culture at the time. Um, and so um, you have this, you know, she keeps, she keeps resisting, but all of the, the resistance that she offers, um, the argument goes, is token resistance. She keeps pointing to other people um, and really almost um, trying to recruit the, the wolf to help her deal with the criticisms of these other people who are trying to control her behavior. So um, it's, you know, her maiden aunt who has a vicious mind. Well, what does that mean? That means she's going to um, have critical thoughts about a, a woman who is, you know, staying in the night at a man's house um uh, the neighbors might think that something happened right um the there's there's bound to be talk um so all of these different lines that she's using uh the 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 critical view was she's trying to recruit all of these other people to help her bolster her no but the flip of that is well actually these are all people pressuring her to say no and maybe she's recruiting the wolf to try and help her craft an excuse that will will enable her not to suffer all of these social consequences for doing what she wants to do uh, so that she can say there weren't any cabs it was really cold there was a blizzard um, and therefore maybe cover herself some from those consequences uh, so a lot of those those same lines that are pointed to as evidence um, of her lack of consent are actually um, also offered as evidence of in her cultural context her trying to demonstrate um, her, her consent, um, but trying to have sort of uh, his help in navigating that dance that gets her to where she can actually say yes. Um, and that ties into the, the line about the what's in this drink, um, which, which again, from, from our, from, to our modern ears, I think sounds pretty horrifying, but was, I think, a pretty common phrase or joke. Uh, and the idea was, you, if you found yourself doing something that was not typical for you, you might say, well, what's in this drink? And the whole point was you were trying to blame the drink for you doing something that you were doing. And uh, the whole point was that there wasn't anything in the drink. It was It was sort of a um just a stock joke uh, at the time um and it gave you again an out like oh well there was something you know what, what's in this drink I, I normally wouldn't be the sort of woman who would stay the night with this man but um you know so i'm gonna gonna make this kind of of joke to pass that responsibility and maybe pass some of the the social um 
uh, criticism that could result. So I think that's that's the response there to um, to the what's in this drink comment. And whether we think that that's worth listening to now in our current context is a question that we'll get to. But that's that's in the 40s. That's what's being described there. It's not a description of someone actually being roofied. And um, that's not what's going on. Um, so uh, yeah, so the, there's actually an excerpt here in this Tumblr piece that I thought was really good. And I'm actually just gonna um, just going to to read this little bit at the end um, because what 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 this defense includes is it goes through all of these different points. Um, at the end, the the point of the, uh, that this piece makes is is the song is not the song is not the problem, the culture is the problem. Um, so so uh, this, this author says, it's not actually a song about rape, it's a song about a woman finding a way to exercise sexual agency in a patriarchal society designed to stop her from doing so. Uh, but it is also at the same time one of the best illustrations of rape culture that pop culture has ever produced. It's a song about a society where women aren't allowed to say yes, which happens to mean it's also a society where women don't have a clear and unambiguous way to say no. Um, and I just, I thought that was a, a fantastic way to articulate the problem with the culture out of which this song sprang. Um, even if I'm, I think that there are good explanations for why the song itself is not necessarily trying to endorse those things. Um, did you guys have thoughts on this, this idea of a feminist defense um, of this song, do you find that persuasive? Do you have counterpoints for um, for those arguments? I think it's funny that people don't know the what's in this drink kind of um, expression. Like, I, I guess because I grew up watching um, Looney Tunes and stuff, that, that's a common phrase from the 30s and 40s. Like, that's not an unusual thing to say. So when I hear it, like, I don't think, oh, she's being roofied. I think, yeah, you know, the. Stu three stooges say that like it's just it's it's not unusual for that that time period i think it's funny that so many people just jump to that assu uh, assumption but um i don't know maybe i just watch old stuff um but my actually one of my like i see where that argument is going the general argument of this was a feminist you know kind of empowerment song um but if you watch the the video that we watched of the original performance the Washington Post article that we read says that neither of the two performances in Neptune's Daughter are overtly problematic, and I, I disagree with that passionately. <laughs> like, both of those scenes, to me, are extremely problematic. Um, in the first one, where the man is, is the wolf and is trying to convince the woman to stay, he's grabbing her arm um, he's for repeatedly. He's, he's forcefully moving her around the room. He's um, taking off her coat against her will when she puts it on. He's, you know, manhandling her. It, it's a very aggressive form of, it's not a wink and a nod. It's a, it's a pretty aggressive um, scene. And the second one where the woman is the uh, wolf is actually more aggressive. Um, and it's played for laughs. It's Red Skelton. So it's, you know, they're the comic sidekicks. And, um, but it's, it's pretty forceful and it ends with her like shoving him onto a couch and claim climbing on top of him and turning off the light like it in neither of those is is like you said it, it's not it's not kind of um it's not it's definitely about sex like there's there's not that's not an undertone that's that's right there at the top it's it's very very clear that that's what is intended in both of these scenes and and this was in 1949 so this is this you know just a few years after it was written the same time period and everything so um 
you know, even if it's not about date rape necessarily, it is definitely about, um, I guess the nice way to say it would be seducing and the harsh way to say it would be coercing somebody to stay when they want to leave for whatever reason they want to leave, whether it's, you know, social pressure, whatever. They, they are clearly walking out the door and, and the wolf is, you know, cajoling, urging, sometimes forcing them to stay. Um, so I do think that that is at least worth bringing up, that even in the same decade, um, this, this was a, that's a pretty, pretty strong scene. Both of those scenes were pretty strong. What, what did y'all think about the scenes? I felt that way about the, about both scenes too, actually more, uh, you're right that the second one where the woman is the wolf is more aggressive. It also seemed more playful. Um, so I was, I, that just, but the first one where the man is the wolf and the woman is the mouse, it, it, that one where he's taking off her hat when she puts it on, like actively working against her progress. <laughs> I, that, ah, it was really, really distressing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I found that one really frustrating. I think that the, the piece that you read a little bit of Alexis part earlier in that piece, she talks about, um, because uh, one of the things is that the woman doesn't actually want to go. Like there's there's that debate there on what is the desire of the woman. And we're so, at, I mean, at that point in culture, um, a woman having desire was such a problematic thing that it has to even be masked in the song that we're not sure what her desire is. Does she want to stay? And if she wants to stay, like you said, Alexis, she's recruiting his help to give her reasons to stay, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it never says what she wants. Like we never actually see anything where she says what she personally wants. Right. And I think that's where, like, when the gender flips at the end of the movie and it's, and they, like, make a spoof of female desire, then it's like, it can only be, female desire can only be present if it's funny, right? The only way that they can show that is if they can make it comical and make that woman almost a laughing stock. Um, so, so that, to me, is another problem just in, in general culturally. What this song is highlighting culturally is our deep discomfort with female desire. Um, and, and that, like she says at the end of that piece, that if there's not a clear yes for a woman, there also can't be a clear no. So if female desire is not a thing that we're in touch with and we're aware of and let it live without it having to be laughed at, then we won't get to a solid no. Like those two things depend upon each other. Um, so for women to know their actual wanting and let that be is, is a thing I think in moving uh, against rape culture, trying to undo and work against rape culture, knowing desire and allowing female desire is a really key component to that thing to get to a solid understanding of no. That's a great point. And I, I think, yeah, I think it, it is really difficult, right? If your script is the same, whether your desire is for what is happening or your desire is to leave, right? That's going to be problematic if that, that's the only script you're given. That does get, it's going to rob you of the ability to communicate with words what's going on. And that's why it, it matters so much with and maybe that's one of the things that matters, right? Is that this is a song that was not originally, it was not originally just an audio version, right? It was them performing live at parties and then it was in movies. Um, and it depends heavily on, I think, because, because the language language doesn't clue us in to, to maybe which interpretation it is, um, that we have to look at the body language, um, which of course is, is, you know, can, can be problematic and, and can be challenging to do. But I would agree with you. And Neptune's daughter, like, you know, it not only is he physically um, interfering with her attempts to leave in that first version where, where the, the man is the wolf, um, she's not in her body language really demonstrating any desire to stay. Like, she's not selling that. Um, That's true. And I would say, like, so in the gender-flipped version with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, like, he is selling that he wants to stay. Like, he is the sort of regretful, I have to go 
oh, but I really want to stay. Like that's, that's very much what he is selling in that moment. And in the same way that the second version in Neptune's Daughter where it's gender flipped there, Red Skelton is not communicating that he wants to stay. The whole point of that is that he is unsure how to handle this female desire and it makes him uncomfortable. Like he seems to genuinely want to leave. So yeah, he's super uncomfortable. <laughs> so, so I think a lot of it is going to turn on that. And maybe that's one of the issues is that if you're hearing it on the radio, you don't have any of that context of the body language. And you can sing expressively and the singers can do something to help that along, whether they sound like they are cheerful or whether the, the woman sounds even more, not exactly seductive, but, but more into it um, in the way that she sings it or whoever's playing, I guess, the mouse. Um, so maybe that's one of the problems is that an, a purely audio version doesn't give us the context we need um, to have a more healthy version of the song. And I say that, of course, this is a Christian feminist podcast. As a Christian, <laughs> I'm not endorsing as, you know, the, the, the uh, religious content, so to speak, of this song. Like, it's clearly a song about uh, illicit sex. And it's, it's, I'm not on board with that. The Bible's not on board with that. That's not what we're saying. But um, but more problematic in the sense of this, this issue of consent and mutuality um, in their encounter. It's going to be harder to determine that over the radio. Um, I suppose if you're playing a, a version over the radio that has a, a video version, people are more likely to have seen and called to mind that is going to be associated with it. You might be able to combat that somewhat, but there's always going to be listeners who, who don't know that. And so if, if we need visual context in order for the song to work, um, that could be a reason why even if the song is not inherently um, inherently problematic, it might be wise to keep it off of, say, the radio. Um, yeah, I feel like it's basically a litmus test. Like, you can make it say whatever you want it to say because it doesn't actually say anything, right? Like, because it never says what she actually wants, like, you can point to it and say, oh, well, she never said what she wants because she's just trying to come up with excuses for him to, to shoot down for her. Or you can say, oh, she never said what she wants because she's afraid to say what she wants. She's coming up with excuses to, to bolster her argument. You know, it, whichever way you want to read it, you can because there's, there's a lot of ambiguity there. So it, it basically just you know, you can make an argument. And that's, I think, why there's a perpetual controversy that's never really been resolved because we, we can't really resolve it. There's, there's stuff on both sides of the interpretation. Right. Sure. I will, I will say one other thing that people will point to maybe, uh, again, it's not necessarily in the words themselves, but at the end of the song, the two, the two uh, voices do join in harmony and, and agree that it is cold outside. Uh, so I think that for some people, they would, they would say, you know, music, musically speaking, if they've been in sort of a call and response on two sides of an issue throughout the whole so song, the fact that they then decide together to take one side of that, they resolve that and, and are now singing in harmony, that that's a musical cue um, of an actual agreement being reached. Um, and, it, and whether you, you know, and again, I, I suppose you could say that that's her will has finally been overborne. But, um, but I, think, I think because of the celebratory style of the notes, the, the musical notes and it ends on an up note and all those things, it seems like it is more a joining of voices that have made an agreement and are excited about it. Just the music of it. Again, the words are not necessarily going to, to get you there um, clearly, but I just, I thought it was worth mentioning, you know, they go from call and response to um, to singing uh, together. Um, okay. I would just for one second um, verbalize that I, I'm also a Christian and wouldn't necessarily call that sex illicit sex. So just to vocalize that, that sphere of Christianity that might not think uh, sex outside of marriage is um, illicit. Also, like, I do think that's part of what um, 
the fact that you're not sure at the end whether she's been overborn or whether she's agreeing. I agree with you musically speaking, it makes sense that she's agreed. I think what we are trying to figure out now in our culture is how do we let our words be direct enough? Like how do we get away from having to follow like cultural cue or like um, body language cues and those kinds of things which can be misread with too much alcohol or can be misread in any context. Um, so how do we how do we get away from that and let our no mean no and our yes mean yes? But at the same time, and I and that I think is really important, and I think we need to work toward that and think through that in more areas even than just our sexuality. Like we have a we have a lot of areas in our culture where we're um, I think coerced and manipulated, and we're we're unsure of our own our own wanting. Um, but I I think that one of the things I just I don't know on the lighter side of things like this whole gameplay of flirting and like how how love and relationship develops in some sense of like a oh, I don't know like gameplay and and who wants who when and how that stuff kind of plays out um I think it's it's uh just worth saying that that um the, the song also demonstrates that like how it feels to be pursued and sometimes pursuit isn't um isn't predatory, right? Sometimes pursuit is something other than predatory. Um, and that feeling of being pursued or wanted is a good feeling. So figuring out, I mean, often for people, not always. So figuring out that in our, in our culture and in the things that we discuss, I think is, is a really tricky line. It's really hard. That's a, really That's a great point. point though. Yeah, that, that, that pursuit or seduction, right? There, there was a way in which trying to seduce someone doesn't necessarily have to invoke coercive behavior. It doesn't have to have that. So like you said, I like, I like the word pursuit there, that it doesn't necessarily have to have that. Um, and that's one of the questions I had for you guys. Do you think when, when we have a gender flipped version, so then we're, we're maybe not completely, but largely stepping away from um, some of the power dynamic issues, some of the rape culture issues, where you have instead the, the woman who is uh, trying to convince the man to stay. Um, do you, um, or I guess even even in the the um, the ones that are a single gender, um, both both parties are the same gender. Um, sort of leaving aside the issue of the specifics of that, but like, but again, you're not going to have that same power dynamic going on. Um, does that? Does that fix it? Does that help? Does that sort of push back and, and allow us to sidestep um, our concerns about this history and this, this lack of agency and all of those things? Or do those problems survive even when we flip around uh, and, and mess with the genders of, of the participants? I think you're still going to have the issue of, like we were saying before, if it's played for laughs because it's funny that the woman has desire, that's going to be problematic. Um, and, and especially I think earlier on in history, that was the case if it was gender flipped. Um, but even now there's still kind of something funny about like, oh, the guy wants to get away, but she wants him. Like, like, why is that funny? Like, it's funny because, because we're so unused to admitting that women could want a man, like, it, especially like having actual desire, like that is just something that we've kind of not talked about for a culture. And so now it seems absurd or, or whatever. Um, so I think that's problematic. Also, in general, I feel like coercion is coercion, whether, I mean, yes, you do have the the strength and the, the patriarchy and all those things that make male coercion inherently more frightening, I think, because there's more of a, you know, there's more power behind it. But still, like the, like we said before, the, the scene with uh, Red Skelton and um, the lady, I don't remember her name, um, 
that it's it's still creepy like she's like very forceful with him and and that makes me uncomfortable no matter who it is you know whether it's a you know man or a woman or a woman and man whatever um but you know the the joseph gordon levitt version like you talked about doesn't have that dynamic because it's very clear that he is you know playing it up he he wants to stay and he's just goofing off and and so i think you know like we said before a lot of it's going to be body language it's going to be you know how it's interpreted um but i don't think just gender flipping it is going to instantly remove all of the issues you know that are kind of laying on top of the song well and i think it's worth pointing out you know we, we talked about how when you gender flip it right it's often it's it it catches us by surprise perhaps that that the woman is the the initiator or the aggressor or or the wolf i guess uh, in this case but i think it's also worth pointing out we also tend to think it's funny if a guy ever doesn't want to be the aggressor doesn't want to be the wolf the idea of the man as mouse can be played for as much laughs as it was sort of in the the red skeleton um version in in uh Neptune's daughter, right? Mm -hmm. She, she was, it was funny that she was the aggressor, but it was also funny that he was, you know, exhibiting such atypical male behavior as to not be, you know, ready to stay as soon as, as the girl offered. Yeah, that's um, true. And, and instead of always being predatory and always being uh, basically perpetually aroused, that, that, that can also be a, a way that gender stereotypes are, are played up in a way, not just that's harmful to women as being, you know, humorous if they ever possess desire, but also uh, that men are anomalous or flawed if they ever don't uh, have desire. I think that's such a great point. I'm, I'm really glad you made it. Because um, I do think that that our gender stereotypes and often gender gender roles do, do put us in the position to um, almost not have access to what's happening internally because the outside expectations are so strong that we behave a certain way, that we look like the, the masculine man who pursues and the demure woman who doesn't. And if those, if we're acting outside of those two things, if what's internal for us is something outside of those two things, we're, we're separated from it by external expectation. And therefore, again, we're back at the point where we can't find our yes because we can't find our no. You know, or we can't find our no because we can't find our yes. So, because we're not allowed our yes if we're, if we're held to these gender stereotypes. And I think that's as, as damaging and difficult to men and to women. Um, so I think that's a great point. Well, um, before we start talking about where we go from here, I do want to ask you briefly, uh, do you guys think of, you know, this, this is sort of the, I don't know if it's politically correct still to say whipping boy, but the, the whipping boy for sort of bad, like, anti-feminist or feminist, prob problematic from a feminist perspective, Christmas songs. Um, that, that gets sort of everybody uses it as, as the the example and it gets all of this negative attention are there other songs that you guys would want to call out and say hey actually this is also one that maybe we should think about or that 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 doesn't get as much flack as it should um in, in all of our, our holiday listening yeah i'll go ahead and i'll go ahead and jump in there i was gonna let carla if she wanted to to jump in there so yeah go for it okay um i there's two that that i always think about um the first one is santa baby which is just a weird song like i'm sorry like i know that like betty boop did a cover of it and everything and like every, it's funny but it she's basically trying to seduce santa into bringing her stuff like and the people that have done this song do it in a very seductive way uh, madonna and um uh, there, there have been several covers of it, but but it's always done with a very sultry kind of, you know, giggle and, and um, s just the, the tone of it is very, very seductive. And, and the whole point is that, you know, she's trying to like, 
Sidu Santa? Is that, I, I, that's just sounds wrong to even <laughs> say. Like, um, and I will say that the uh, Michael Bublé's cover of this is the only version that I enjoy because he changes it to like Santa Buddy and is basically talking to him like he's a bro and he's like, hey, slip a, <laughs> slip a Rolex under the tree for me. So if you haven't heard that version, I highly recommend it because it's funny and completely devoid of sexual overtones, which why am I saying the word sexual overtones in this song about Santa? Like that's, that's oh. um, so yeah, I don't, I don't understand that song. And I don't understand why it's not uh, a bigger problem um, with feminists especially because there's a line in there where she talks about how good she's been and how many boys she hasn't kissed and how she could you know be that good again next year if you'll give me all this stuff so first of all it's implying that kissing boys is bad and you know that she'll get stuff if she doesn't kiss boys and but yet she's using her sexuality to say all this to Santa it's it's a a very problematic song for me. Uh, do do y'all did y'all ever notice that about Santa Baby? I have another one, but I want to see what you guys think about Santa Baby first. Well, I've had the same thought for sure, and the idea that she's actually exchanging basically her sexuality, whether it's actual sexual acts or not, her sexuality for things, um, like that—that's such a problematic stance to take too, in general. Um, and I think is comes out in all kinds of structures in our society, but that. That, that, that it's so overt in that song. Like, I will exchange uh, my sexuality, my seductiveness for the things you can give me. Um, it's re really troubling. So, yeah. I, uh, I haven't really, hadn't really thought about it before you, you mentioned it, um, Ilea. And I, I confess, I've always found the song more funny than anything else just because of the, the, uh, the nonsense of of trying to come up with a, a sexy Christmas song, right? Because you're, you know, you've got Jingle Bells and you've got <laughs> so Grandma Getting Run Over and you've got all of these songs that are like either sweet or or they're funny or they're just really upbeat. And I love a super upbeat Christmas song. But of course, if you are someone who either wants to consume sort of more uh, sexually oriented pop culture or who tends to produce that, um, that doesn't necessarily give you full scope for your talents if you're <laughs> saying you know, Jingle Bell Rock or whatever. And so it just always struck me as a like, okay, I need a sexy number for Christmas. And, um, and so to, to me, and that just always made me kind of, kind of laugh. Um, and uh, I, I hadn't really thought about, um, yeah, about the specifics. I could see why, I could see why it would be problematic, certainly. And, and uh, certainly not, I think, among uh, the, the better ones. I think, too, it gets, I think it gets a little bit of a pass in our cultural mindset, which is funny, because Baby It's Cold Outside is also old and doesn't. But like, it's an older song. I think if someone, you know, came out with that now, I think people would be much more like, wait a minute. Um, but because it's a classic, uh, I think we tend to give it a pass as just being nostalgic and old fashioned and therefore fine, um, or at least innocent or something. Again, it's interesting because that hasn't seemed to rescue Baby It's Cold Outside from, um, uh, from those criticisms. But I don't tend to think of it as yeah, I think I think the fact that it's it's removed from us in, mm -hmm. in time can insulate us a little bit from thinking about the actual content of the song. And it's so over the top. Maybe everybody just is like, "Well, that's ridiculous." Anyway, well, especially <laughs> Eartha Kit. I mean, it's, yes, it's that's yes. that's the one you hear, and that's the yes. one if you if you've watched. Like there there's some snips of that, that you can watch on YouTube, and it is it's it is very like again, it's a the we need a sexy Christmas song, and I just. Um, Maybe, maybe that's why, but, but I think you're making valid points about the lyrics, so. The other one that I know has been talked about a lot um, from a theological perspective, but I think is at least worth mentioning from a 
feminist perspective is um, the song Mary Did You Know? Um, because I, I, I get really upset about the song because it is Magnificat Erasure and I will not stand for it. <laughs> the, the entire song is, is taking away the agency of the person who absolutely did know more than anybody else it's a woman and so so you know you're you're asking and it's a man writing the songs mark lowry and he's writing the song and it is a beautiful song and i love to listen to it and it's you know we sing it in church and all, but but you are asking the one person who was charged with this information from the beginning did you know this information and and she sings a whole song about it and she there's this whole song where she talks about how you know he's the savior and he's gonna and 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 the history and and you know it really shows her knowledge and her um understanding of the word and and then you know we sing the song about hey did you know that your baby boy is gonna do all these things and, and i've heard defenses against that criticism um that oh well think of it as gabriel asking her this well he didn't he told her he told her the information and uh, it, it bothers me from a feminist perspective because we already minimize the role of women in history and the role of women in the Bible more than we should. Um, and we did just a few months ago, we did an episode on um, women in church history and, and how, you know, that gets so, so rarely spoken of um, and to take this woman, you know, who is the most blessed among women and who has this amazing part in the Christmas story and who, who delivers this Magnificat where she expresses all of these things and she puts it all together in this beautiful piece. And then to just completely erase all of that because it sounds good to ask her questions because, and, and the assumption is that she didn't know, right? The assumption in order for the song to work, you have, you know, did you know all this? Well, you know, the, the mystery of the song is that she's, you know, she's holding Jesus and she didn't know all these things and, and she did. And I just think, that from a feminist perspective we need to honor that 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 god chose her to be the first one to know so that's my that's my mini rant on on why from a feminist perspective that song has issues yeah and that's a whole other like that's a whole can of worms that we obviously don't have time to get into today i will refer sure, our yeah. listeners to uh their sectarian review did an episode i think it was last christmas we'll, we'll put it in the show notes but they did a whole episode on bad christmas songs and i feel like the one that got the most airtime was Mary, did you know? They had feelings about it. Um, so, and a lot of those same issues that you're raising, Ilya, um, were were called out um, in that episode. Um, so I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on that today because that is discussed there and because, you know, we, we are going to be running out of time before too long. But um, but before we, I guess I want to give, give Carla a chance to respond if she had thoughts uh, on Mary, did you know, or on other songs that that are problematic from a feminist perspective. I think your, all your thoughts are exactly right on. Um, I, I, I agree with you completely. And I think we've had conversations around the church community I, I'm involved with about like Mary's consent, whether her consent was uh, a knowledgeable consent and that kind of thing. And I have strong feelings about that, that Mary was fully participatory and consenting. And um, so, uh, yeah, so I just, I am very with you in the ways that we have often erased her involvement, her participation, her active uh, embracing of this what was happening to her I think is really problematic so yeah I'm just on board I uh, I didn't have any ones sort of for myself but I did try to google problematic Christmas songs and uh the, a couple ones that I thought that were kind of funny that came up um one uh was um someone who really really doesn't like all I want for Christmas is you um <laughs> And therefore, I had actually rewritten the words that are like, um, all I want for Christmas is stuff I can get for myself and achieving my own goals and 
all of that stuff, which <laughs> is just awesome. not, I mean, which is, some of it was true. Some of it was a little too like self-worship for me, but, um, but it was still also like, look, it's, it, I, it was just, I wasn't necessarily uh, on board with that. I think it's a great song, but, uh, but that was one that was listed because you shouldn't, you shouldn't want everything you want to be another person, which hey, I'm down with that. Like, you know, no, no one person should fulfill any other person where we're not made for that. But that was one. And then the other one I saw that I thought was really funny um, was, and, and maybe this was just me being on a different page than everybody else, but talking about, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus as like a celebration of infidelity. And I what? always thought Santa Claus was daddy. Like it I thought that daddy. was the joke, right? Is that daddy is dressed up like Santa and yeah. the kid's like, oh my gosh, my mom is kissing Santa, but yeah. it's really dad. And he's like, oh, if daddy had only seen, and like, that's the joke. But, that's the joke. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm not crazy. <laughs> No, but I have heard criticisms about, like, the kid's not in on the joke. So the kid thinks that he's seeing mom have this affair or whatever, and that that's problematic. And that if a kid's listening to this song, they don't get it. But yeah, like, no, it's totally like nudge, nudge. It's daddy, don't, you know. Okay, I'm glad I'm not. Yeah, I just was like, has my whole, like, Christmas song listening been a lie? And I was just completely. So I'm glad to know that I'm not the only person who who assumed that Santa was daddy. Um so thank you for that. I, I feel a little more sane now. Um, well, briefly, before we get into our passing on recommendations, I'm curious, in light of what we've discussed about uh, Baby It's Cold Outside, what do we do now? Should we listen to it? Should we not listen to it? Um, are we going to listen to it even if we don't think we should because we really like it? Um, and if we listen to it, is there a particular way we can do that that will allow us to engage or push back on the parts of the songs that, that raise concerns? Uh, Carla, what about you? What's your take away from all this listen don't listen what are we going to do um I feel like the things that we've done to try to shake it up like the Lady Gaga version like I'll listen to that that works for me I I do feel a sense of like imposing anachronistically our understanding now on something that is uh uh older you know from a different era and a different context isn't isn't fair to the piece itself so if we did that on all sorts of literature if we did that to the bible we wouldn't we would like literally censor the bible out of our reading so I, I don't think that it's okay or fair to take our understanding of what we know now and impose it on something from a different context that said i think we can use something from a different context to put next to what we know now and say ah here's where we got where we are Here's why we have rape culture the way we do, and that is because women haven't had access to their no. So we can we can use those pieces to help us inform our opinions and our structures now, but I don't think it's quite fair to say, well, now that piece is negated as useful. Um, I think it's really great to mix it up and make it to problematize a little bit what it was doing and to do something like the Lady Gaga, and I can't say his whole name, Gordon Levitt. What's his first? I always forget. Joseph, yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I'd like to take their version and something like that where you, it's really clear what's happening and it's really clear that it's gameplay and the, the stereotypes are somewhat switched. That kind of thing I think is useful for us to just keep trying to understand how we do this in our culture. Um, so I will still listen to it personally. I think I honestly would be careful about having my daughters listen to it unless it's the version um, that is a little bit switched up. So there's that. Fair enough. What about you, Ilea? Um, I, I'm so torn. Like, I don't turn it off if it comes on the radio, but it's not on my playlist on Spotify. Um, I think, I don't know, there, there are plenty of songs and movies and like even cartoons that 
we used to think were acceptable and now we realize don't have a great message, whether that's a racial message or like Pepe Le Pew being just a serial assaulter. Um, and like that we see that and we're like, oh no, that's problematic. That that was done at, you know, or like um, My Fair Lady. I'm, um, you know, so some of the, there are things in, in these pieces that we can see as problematic and that we don't want to glorify or continue now. Um, I, you know, at best, this is a monument to a time when women weren't free to make their own decisions. And at worst, it just says that no doesn't have to mean no. Um, so, you know, I think that's concerning. And, uh, and for me, like the bottom line is, if it's triggering to victims of abuse, then that should give us pause, you know. Um, if somebody who has been through some kind of a, an, a date rape or assault or something can't listen to it because it reminds them of their assault, that I, I'm, I would be fine if it never came on the radio again. I, I, I'm not going to necessarily turn it off or, you know, rage against it. But, um, you know, I, I think it's something where we can say this, this used to be funny and now it's not. Um, and it's a glimpse of kind of a bigger problem that starts with the fact that we ever thought it was funny. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on the middle ground, but. Sort of a middle ground, but, but practically. So sort of like, like philosophically on the middle ground, but practically on the, why don't you skip that one? Yeah, I would be fine if I never heard it again, but I, I understand that for nostalgia reasons, it's not probably going to ever go away. You know, I think probably like we were talking about with the, the, the radio station in Cleveland, I think probably we'll hear less and less of it, but you know, then that's just going to make some people want to go out and make new versions. It's, you know, I don't think we'll ever get rid of it, um, but I just, I don't think it's worth glorifying. That's fair. I, I confess that the, the, the musicality, the, the, the song itself, I just, I love, I love the song. Um, and so I will, I will probably continue to listen to it, but I am, I find myself more sympathetic than I expected to be with the decision to say, take it off of the radio. Um, although I would, I would want that to be the radio station's decision and not impose on it from outside sources. But, um, but yeah, that, that it, that it requires contextualization and therefore it might be better not to have it played when that kind of contextualization can't happen. So just coming on the radio with no visual component, you're not gonna be able to contextualize it. You're not gonna be able to use that body language to clearly communicate what's going on. Um, and I do, I think like this idea of, it's a song that requires a visual component um, in, order to, in order to work in a way that's not problematic. Um, and so, um, because I, because of my familiarity with with some of the culture at the time, I will continue to listen to it on my own. Um, I don't know that I'm going to play it for my boys, um, uh, and I, I I I can understand why maybe the radio is not the best place for it. Uh, so I would say either in a setting where you can have that conversation and you can educate people about what this means and what it doesn't mean, um, that this is not celebrating, you know. The, the administering of substances to someone to override their consent, right? Uh, their lack of consent. Um, and if you can't provide that context and you can't communicate all of that, then maybe it's best to give it a pass. So, uh, which is which is more more than I expected. I think I, I was pretty staunchly on the, this is fine. This is a celebration of, of, a, of an actual expression of agency in a culture that was trying to deny that agency. Um, but, um, but yeah, you guys have, have helped me think through that. And I, I think I'm a little bit more on the, there are times and places for this. Um, and it's not all times and not all places. So thank you. All right, uh, moving to our, our third segment then, uh, passing on. Uh, this is the portion of our um, discussion where we, we make recommendations to you, the listener, um, for further reading, listening, or, or other 
consumption um, related to or, or sort of bouncing off from, from what we've talked about today. So Carla, do you have a recommendation for us? I do, yeah. And this is a recommendation that was given to me and I haven't read it yet. So I'm suggesting it to me. I actually just ordered it <laughs> and I'm suggesting it to you. It's a book called Ask, Building Consent Culture. And it's um, by a, a woman named Kitty Stryker. Um, and a friend of mine has read it and says it's just brilliant. And it talks through um, consent in lots of areas of our culture and how consent actually isn't built into the way we function um, in a lot of areas, politically, um, consumer in consumer product and that kind of thing. We're, we just don't have consent sort of built in. Um, and so the book is called Ask, Building Consent Culture. And I'm gonna read it and I think we all should. <laughs> Excellent, thank you for that recommendation. Um, Hylia, did you have a recommendation for us? Yeah, I was gonna recommend some um, alternatives for uh, Christmas music. Um, if you are looking for fun and uh, kind of silly Christmas songs that don't necessarily um, have to have an hour long defense in order to um, sound enjoyable, um, Straight No Chaser is a group that does um, acapella and they have a ton of albums but their Christmas albums are fantastic and they do um, if you, you probably have heard it but their version of um, the 12 days of Christmas and their version of uh, you're a mean one Mr. Grinch are just legendary they're both just amazing so I, I highly recommend them if you want something fun and uh, silly um, and on a more serious note if you want some really good Christmas music um, I recommend John Michael Talbot his Christmas album, um, John Michael Talbot is a, he's a monk actually, um, but it doesn't sound like monastic chants. It sounds like beautiful choral music with a full orchestra and it's amazing. And his rendition of Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence is one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, and also uh, the group Medieval Babes does a Christmas album called uh, Mistletoe and Wine that is just beautiful and a little bit less, um, of the like strictly like uh, Christmas story nativity centered and more Christmas time centered, um, if that's more your, your flavor. Thanks for those recommendations, ladies. Those sound great. Um, I'm actually also going to recommend something that I have not yet listened to in this case. Um, and actually earlier today, the Gospel Coalition website uh, published a list of 111 great songs for Advent curated by Brett McCracken. Uh, so I'm going to recommend this for any of our listeners who are looking for songs with a, a more of a focus on the sacred aspects of the Christmas holiday. Um, we can hear a lot of Jingle Bell Rock and Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree and All I Want for Christmas is You on the radio. But if you're looking for a music with a more sacred focus, um, this list of 111 songs purports to do exactly that. It's got some of the more classic carols on it, uh, as well as a bunch of songs I've never heard. So I'm going to try and break out of my box a little bit um, this Christmas and, and listen to some new music that is recommended by the Gospel Coalition. So any listeners who are likewise interested in expanding their horizons as far as sacred Christmas music uh, can feel free to join me in that. Uh, and with that, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison and Ellen Peterson is our intern. 
For Carla Ewart and Ilea Danner-Grubbs, I'm Alexis Neal. Our new season starts in January with an episode all about recommendations, and we'll be asking for recommendation categories on our Facebook page soon. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in all things love.